Well, friends, if you have a Bible, please turn with me this evening to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 tonight, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14. Verses 1 through 14 as we continue in our ongoing series looking at the golden chain of salvation. And tonight we come to the next golden link in the golden chain, having considered adoption this morning. Tonight, we proceed to look at the great doctrine of sanctification. You recall, of course, that we are declared righteous in the holy courtroom of God Almighty in justification. And then we are thrust into that same God's living room, as it were, in adoption. Well, tonight we're thinking about the believer's growth in holiness, or the the more technical term in Scripture, sanctification. Now, that term comes to us from the Latin, sanctus. Uh, If you had your Latin Bibles with you all tonight, as I'm sure so many of you do, and you turned to Isaiah chapter 6 with Isaiah beholding the throne room of God, you'd read there that the seraphim were crying out, Sanctus, Sanctus, Sanctus Dominus. Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts. Sanctification means, quite simply, to be set apart or to declare holy, to consecrate. Or it could also mean to free from sin, to purify. To sanctify essentially means, if I may be permitted to invent a verb, to holify, to holify, to grow in holiness. It is an essential component of our overall salvation, just as much as justification or regeneration, the new birth. It is the next link in the golden chain. And You know, those of us sitting here tonight in a PCA church, we may just sort of assume this to be true. Or if you have uh, another Reformed background that you've come from, if you're from OPC churches or RPCNA churches or Reformed Baptist churches or so forth, around here, around this general Reformed orbit, we hear the word sanctification a lot. Uh, It comes up in our prayer meetings, our Bible studies. We read about it in Table Talk magazine. Of course, sanctification is an important part of my salvation. And if you think that, good. That means that the Lord has been kind to you, and your pastors and elders have been teaching you well and serving you well. But in the church more broadly, brothers and sisters, and even in some Reformed churches, particularly in the last 10 to 15 years, there's been a great deal of confusion over this doctrine. Now, on the one hand, we've had some Christians, some some might say fundamentalists, who've been promoting a kind of rigid moralism. Don't watch certain TV, don't wear certain clothes, don't read certain books, don't drink certain beverages because that's what Christians do. And if you do those things, watch out. You're likely to fall away from salvation. Well, that's not biblical holiness. Yes, biblical holiness certainly involves abstaining from some habits and and avoiding certain vices, that's true. But it's not that merely. Holiness is not less than habits, It's not less than habits, but it is far more. We'll talk about that. So on the one hand, there's been a kind of rigid formalism and a rigid moralism in some quadrants of Christianity. But on the other hand, sometimes with Christians who've been reared in that context of rigid moralism, as a result, some have overreacted to that, and they would argue that sanctification is really nothing more than remembering your justification. How do we progress in holiness? Well, it's really quite simple, they say. Remember again, dwell on the great truth that God has already done everything that we need to do. You are justified. You are no longer condemned. Remember that great truth, Christian. Stop saying that we need to try harder and do more. You just remember your justification. 
And when you do sin, well, remember your justification again. And that, that's the extent of the Christian life. You needn't do anything. Just remember that great doctrine over and over again. That's how they argue. And friends, that position, while, while rooted in a certain amount of correction, we, uh, correct doctrine, we do need to remember our justification and praise the Lord for our justification. That position, if that's as far as it goes, is also an error. That is what is called antinomianism. Where does that word come from? Well, namos in Greek means law, so anti-namos, anti-law. It means those who are against God's law, God's commands for how the Christian should live. There are those out there who, however quietly, are saying, if you are a Christian, it doesn't matter how you live because you're already forgiven. It's a quiet, passive license to sin is what that is. Antinomianism is what it's called. And it is a deadly poison, brothers and sisters, that has plagued the church since the beginning. So I hope you can see some of the problem here. The Bible says that Christians aren't supposed to live like the world lives. So some, in order to heed that, they they run off into moralism. That's a problem. But then others overreact and they respond in the opposite extreme by going to antinomianism. It doesn't matter how you live because you're already forgiven and you just need to think straight about the things of God's word, which is actually another kind of quiet legalism in itself. Just think the right things all the time. But neither error actually represents the biblical teaching about a believer's sanctification. What are we going to do? Let's turn to God's holy word. There's a novel idea. Let's look to God's word in Romans chapter 6. As I said, lots of passages where we could look, but Romans 6 is one of the classic passages on this glorious doctrine. So let's read God's word, and then we'll pray and ask for his help and blessing as we study it together for a few moments tonight. Romans 6, I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. This is God's word, brothers and sisters. Hear it. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us tonight. Would you join me? Let's all pray together.
O truly, Lord God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray that you would grant us your Holy Spirit's illumination as we study this, your holy word, our daily bread this night. We ask it all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Just to quickly remind us of the context here, because we're in all sorts of different passages as we're going about the golden chain of salvation. We were in Galatians this morning, we're in Romans tonight, so let me just set the context for a moment. Here in Romans, Paul has been teaching the Roman Christians about the glories of justification, right? That is, that the believers are declared righteous in the sight of God with the righteousness of Christ reckoned to their account, freely, by his grace, received by faith alone. Remember, you're not more or less justified. You either are justified or you are standing condemned. That's it. You don't grow in your justification. You don't weaken in your justification. Justification is that once-for-all declaration, that verdict of the heavenly judge rendered not on account of your merit, but on account of the finished work and righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. And we're pardoned forever. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing can undo your justified status. And if that's true... And it is. My sin is powerless. So there's no real danger. Your your train of thought might go there. The temptation toward antinomianism, as Martin Lloyd-Jones famously referred to it, preaching the glorious free grace of God to us in Christ Jesus, might, might, might tempt one to become an antinomian. That's how potent God's pardoning grace is. But Lloyd-Jones knew his Bible, and he knew the answer, of course, in Romans 6, right? Right there at the front of this chapter, right at the top. What shall we say then? Verse 1, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. God forbid, it says in the old King James Version. The Apostle Paul is anticipating that objection about how we live in response to the free grace of God, and if our justification can never be undone because we are pardoned by God's grace, forever secure in him, The Apostle Paul is anticipating that objection, and he's answering it here. It has been said many times that Christ came to save his people not only from the penalty of sin, but to deliver us from the power of sin as well. He came to save you, Christian believer, from sin's penalty, from the guilt and the penalty you deserve. That's the doctrine of justification. And not only that, he came to save you, to deliver you from sin's power, That's what's in view in the doctrine of sanctification, these twin graces. That's what Paul's expounding here in Romans. And you see, Paul wants the the Romans to know that they get the whole Christ. Not just just part of Christ's power, not just a, a portion of Christ's saving benefits toward them, but they get all of Christ. And you get all of his power, you get all of his benefits. Such a great salvation is ours. Christ delivers you, believer in Jesus, from the penalty of sin and justification. That's what Paul's been expounding in Romans, really, since chapter 3. And now here, as he turns the page of chapter 5 and into chapter 6, he turns logically to expound the truth of sanctification. Christ delivers you from the power of sin, from its hold on you. And so in the time remaining, as we look at this text tonight, I want to highlight three simple things, three simple things here from Romans chapter 6. Uh, This is not unique to me. There's all kinds of sermons. There's all kinds of commentaries on Romans 6 and the doctrine of sanctification. And they expound this doctrine. They'll highlight these three things. 
But first, the basis of sanctification. And then I want to look at two aspects of sanctification. Definitive sanctification and progressive sanctification. So three things. The basis of sanctification and then definitive sanctification and then progressive sanctification. These are both important, these latter two, and we'll spend some time thinking about uh, some application uh, to our lives in light of these doctrines. We're dealing a little bit here, brothers and sisters, this evening with some technical terminology, but that's okay. It's incredibly important for us to know and to understand. As we've said before, doctrine is for life. Theology is not just for academic eggheads, but theology done rightly. Theology done rightly is to enable us to live before the face of God, to live life before him, quorum Deo. So let's get to it, shall we? Let's think about the first thing, the basis, the basis of a Christian's sanctification. Paul's talking about this great transformation, this this liberation from sin, no, no, no longer needing to live under its dominion, being free from its enslavement. So on what basis does this great inner transformation take place? Paul says, first of all, It is based on our union with Christ. We've heard that before, haven't we? Look with me at verses 3 and 4 here in chapter 6. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Baptism, Paul is saying to the Romans, is the great sign of union with Christ. And isn't this a a, a wonderful mercy of God, another wonderful of of his happy providences that we got to witness a baptism just this morning? Uh, We didn't plan this, of course. No one planned on poor Dr. Wilborn getting sick. No one planned on me having to pinch hit for the sermon tonight. But in God's kindness, we saw that visibly, tangibly presented before us tonight the baptism of David as an adult convert to the Lord Jesus. Not that 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 lessens the significance or the meaning of our covenant infant baptisms, but what a joy it is. Is it not what a joy it is to see that, an adult baptism of a young man, young woman, an old man, an old woman, anyone who has lived a life far from Christ and has turned to him in saving faith. And we get to visibly, tangibly witness that administration of that sign and seal upon them as representative of of their faith union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's keep praying for more adult baptisms in the life of this congregation. Amen? But remember, as we began this series way long ago, we noted that union with Christ is that great overarching theme to this golden chain of salvation. All our salvation, all the aspects, all the blessings and benefits that we enjoy occur within that context of union with Christ. Union with Christ is the, that great foundational underpinning of all these blessings and benefits that we're studying in these weeks together, of all the Christian salvation. And that's certainly the basis for sanctification, as Paul expounds it here in Romans 6. And Paul here, he cites their baptisms as a way of sort of grabbing their consciences and saying, Christian, baptism says some things about you. It says that you are united to Jesus. And if you are united to Jesus there are implications for the way you live. As one man put it, it means this. If you're united to Jesus Christ, that means you died with him and you came to new life in him and that new life should show. Close quote. For Paul, baptism is a picture, not the only picture, but certainly a picture of this salvific reality. 
We've been united to the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore we've come to new life. And that new life is the basis of ongoing change. Perhaps a, perhaps a farming picture, perhaps a farming analogy might help. If you want your crops to grow, the seeds need to be planted in the proper kind of soil. Now, my boys know this. We talk about this all the time, right? If, you, if you've got pumpkin seeds or sunflower seeds or watermelon seeds or whatever, if you take your seeds, boys, and you, you throw them on the sidewalk or you throw them on the asphalt parking lot, they're not going to get very far. No, you need the proper context. You need the proper environment for your seeds to take root and to flourish. Plant them in nourishing, well-tilled, nutrient-rich soil, and you'll see your crops spring forth soon enough. Well, likewise, God brings us from death to life through union with his Son, the Lord Jesus. That union with Christ, that's the context, that's the, that's the, the basis, the soil, if you like. Rich and fertile, and from that will spring forth the fruit, the, the harvest crop of sanctification. Union with Christ, brothers and sisters, union with Christ is the basis of our sanctification. It cannot happen apart from him and apart from his saving power. So that's the first thing. The basis of our sanctification, namely union, faith union with the Lord Jesus Christ. But then secondly, there are two distinct components. Two distinct components to sanctification. This is what in theological studies we often call definitive sanctification and then progressive sanctification. So let's think first about definitive sanctification. To be sanctified means to be holy or or means to be set apart. Are you set apart for the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you consecrated to him? Are you his now or at some point later, eventually? Well... According to scripture, if you're a Christian, the answer is now. He is yours and you are his. That union with Christ. Once again, it's all over the place. You are set apart. You belong to him now, right now. A unique once-for-all break with the prevailing power of sin in your life has occurred if you've become a child of God. Romans 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now notice, even as I read that verse, notice how Paul, notice how the scripture uses the past tense. You were crucified. You are no longer enslaved to sin. It's a, do you see, it's a decisive breach with sin's power and dominion that he's describing here. A decisive breach, a decisive fracturing of that former union that we had with sin. Praise God, believer in Jesus Christ, sin no longer reigns in your hearts. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've placed your faith in him, if you're, if you're trusting him savingly tonight, sin no longer reigns in your hearts. It has been dethroned. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. He breaks the power of reigning sin. Sin reigns in the hearts of the unregenerate, the the spiritually dead, the spiritually far off. That is, sin does reign there. Sin is on the throne in in our natural state apart from Christ. Not so in the souls of God's children. Definitive sanctification. You are definitively set apart for King Jesus. You belong to him. 
You are no longer the property. You are no longer under the dominion of sin and death. You have been transferred into his glorious kingdom of light and life. Paul speaks about that elsewhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You remember it? It's one that's come up frequently in lots of discussions and lots of sermons and lots of controversies regarding a whole host of things in the last few years, and rightly so. Do you remember the context of 1 Corinthians 6? Paul gives this litany of these grievous sins, horrendous wickedness, immoralities and, 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 and foul putrid tendencies and proclivities of all kinds, acts and habits, maybe some of which we in this room have even committed. And then he says to the Corinthians, remember that glorious, that glorious climax and conclusion, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Do you notice again that past tense verbiage? You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. A decisive breach with the old you has occurred so that you are changed definitively in your new birth. Now what about 1 John chapter 3, verse 6? Because that's a passage that often troubles Christians. Remember what it says? John the Apostle says, No one who abides in Christ keeps on sinning. Uh-oh. So what does John mean? Well, he goes on. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or knows him. You see, John is saying here that there is a real sense in which those who are united to Christ by faith, those who abide in Christ, there is a real sense in which they have changed. Sin is no longer the great defining feature of their life. Is, is the general thrust of your life, is the tenor of your life, your identity, if you will, the defining aspect of you, is it sin, brothers and sisters? No. It is Christ, Christ who is your life, Scripture says, yes? Indeed, earlier in that same letter, and John says in, uh, in, in 1 John 1, eight, verses 8 through 10, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So we know, based on what the Apostle John says here, that he doesn't mean that Christians who earnestly, sincerely, truly believe on the Lord Jesus Christ never sin, Rather, it means sin is no longer who they are. Definitive sanctification. A new claim has been staked upon your life. Under new management, under new ownership is the sign, that that bright neon sign that's flashing above your head, believer in Jesus. You are Christ's. Sin does not have the dominion over you. Christ has the dominion over you. You are Christ's, and you've been set apart unto him. That's the second thing. Definitive sanctification. And that's the, that's the aspect of sanctification that tends to get less emphasized or maybe not given as much attention in a lot of circles. The aspect of sanctification that we tend to think about more so is this third one that we want to think about here. Progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification here in Romans 6. Look at verse 11. Paul says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. They are commanded to not allow sin to reign in their mortal bodies. You see that verse 12? Sin, that old foul tyrant, is toppled. And then he's, he's been d- dethroned, kicked out of the country. And then just for good measure, after he's been kicked out of the country, he's been beheaded after that. He's gone. He's got no power anymore. So stop acting like you still have to obey his laws, Paul is saying. The, the, 
The, the king has been dethroned, deported, decapitated. He's got no power here anymore. Now, his impotent little minions may still live on, right, hiding away in some little cave far away, sending out threatening little messages once in a while. But they are pathetic and powerless. Ignore them. You don't have to heed them. Imagine if there's any still left over down in Cuba. Imagine that there's still little minions left over from Fidel Castro who's long been dead. And they're shouting out at the, the governor of Texas or they're shouting out at the governor of Florida barking out orders. No one's listening to them. Be quiet. You have no power here. Your leader is dead and gone. Enough is enough. Silence. Verse 13. We must cease using the members of our bodies as instruments of unrighteousness, but instead use them as instruments of righteousness, pleasing to God. So you see, there's progress to be made. Paul's exhorting and encouraging the Roman Christians. There's progress to be made. You've been set apart. You've been redeemed. You've died with Christ. You've risen again with Christ. Let's not let your members continue. Your bodily instruments continue to be being used as instruments for unrighteousness, but rather for righteousness. You know, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, tells us that if we are Christians, we are being transformed from one degree of glory into the next so that we become more like Jesus. That's what we sing about in the hymn, change from glory into glory till in heaven we take our place. And oh, what a glorious comfort and promise that truly is, that we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Because when it comes to the battle with sin... When it comes to my own growth and holiness, I don't know about you, but many times it feels like I've lost more battles than I've won. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, John says. And so that sinlessness that I want intrinsically, it won't come till glory. I know that. But at the same time, Scripture says that I must be growing. I must be coming, be becoming more Christ-like. And yet so many days, all I can sense is what a wretched man I am. So what a promise. In light of that, what a promise it is that despite what I see in my own heart, despite what I see in my own members, despite what thoughts are lurking in my own brain cells, we are being transformed from glory into glory by God the Lord, the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3.18 That's the promise of Holy Scripture. We are being transformed. We read it earlier in Philippians, or rather it was, uh, we, we did read that in Philippians 2, but even earlier than that in Philippians 1, verse 6, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion unto the day of Christ Jesus. What an encouragement that is. What a comfort that is. Because here's the thing. Growing in holiness involves God's work and our work. Growing in holiness, sanctification, in the language of our catechism, is a work of God's grace. It's, des it's described a little bit differently than some of these other saving benefits like justification and adoption. In fact, turn with me, if you want to, in the back of your hymnal, just to highlight a few sentences, 871, way in the back of your hymnal. You'll notice the shorter catechism help, so helpfully explicates that for us. 871, you see question 33 there, what is justification? And then question 34, what is adoption? And then question 35, what is sanctification? Let me read just a snippet from it. 33, what is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace. 
wherein he pardoneth all our sins and accepteth, accepteth us as righteous in his sight, etc. 34, what is adoption? Adoption is an act of God's free grace, whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. But then 35, sanctification is the, is it act? No, the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Sanctification, in the language of our catechism, is a work of God's grace. Right? Those other ones that we highlighted there, justification, adoption, regeneration, those are an act of God's grace. It's one and done, right? Finite, complete, accomplished. Sanctification is ongoing. It's a work of God's grace. It goes on and on and on throughout this life until we are, until the Lord Jesus should return or our souls temporarily depart from this body and are made perfect in glory, whatever should come first. But here's the comfort. Sanctification is God's promise to us. We read it in Philippians 2, verse 13. God is at work in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. Or one of the great benedictions of Holy Scripture that I love. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. In sanctification, brothers and sisters, God is going to do it. You believe in Jesus. One day, even though it's hard for you to see how you're going to get from here to there, one day you will arrive in glory, radiant with likeness to Jesus Christ. God has promised that he will get it done. He who has promised is faithful. He will surely do it. Now, I say praise God for promises like that because it used to be that we were unable to make any progress in pleasing God. We were so hopelessly enslaved and dead to sin, we could do nothing for ourselves. And so God came to us and made us alive. And he gave us his Holy Spirit and he united us to his Son. And because you are his brothers and sisters, you have the enabling work of the Spirit in your heart so that you may really and truly gain increasing victory. That really is a possibility because you've been given the Holy Spirit. You have been given the expulsive power of a new affection, to use that wonderful language from Thomas Chalmers. You really have, by God's grace, a new family identity, and you have a new DNA, and therefore you have new family characteristics. You have the Holy Spirit at work in you such that you really can, you really can say no to sin and yes to righteousness. It is possible. You really can obey and grow in obedience. Growing in obedience is not an impossibility, Christian. It is both the command of God that he has obligated you to do since he has redeemed you, but it is also the promise of God that he has sworn he will bring about in you. Philippians 2.12 Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Bring that sanctification to bear. Bring it to expression. Grow in holiness. Why? For God is at work in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. God says, do this. Obey my commands. Love what I love. Flee what I abhor. Do this. And guess what? You can. Because the heart that you now have is no longer dead and sin-loving. It is a heart fashioned and implanted within you by my own Holy Spirit, says the Lord. Work it out. Because I am at work within you. Now, I know it's not popular to say these days, 
And I know these sermons get recorded and they get put up on sermon audio and they go all around the world, so I'm probably bound to get a few angry emails from some bizarre corners of Christendom later on. But beloved friends, we really must insist on this doctrine in these days. We really must insist on the doctrine of holiness as a necessary evidence of Christian conversion. The tree must bear fruit, Jesus said. Every tree that does not bear fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. There must be evidence of a regenerate heart. God's children grow to resemble and look like their father. They grow in holiness. Remember what Paul says in Romans 8, in just a few chapters, Romans 8, verse 13? If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's crucial. We don't do it in our own power. We really do exert We really do exert effort, but we don't do it in our own power. We do it in the help of the Spirit. But we do it. We take action. We war against sin. You remember the famous phrase from John Owen, the Prince of the Puritans? Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. We've got work to do, brothers and sisters. It's not let go and let God. No, quite the contrary. We've been summoned to battle. Our confession, our Westminster Confession, puts it like this in chapter 13. Remaining sin will always be with us in this life. Whence ariseth a continual and irreconcilable war. The flesh losing against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Waging war against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. In other words, let me put it to you pastorally like this. If you don't feel the battle raging, something is terribly wrong. If you are struggling with sin, if you're aware of your struggle with sin... If you are bothered by your struggle with sin, take heart. Because the fact that you are bothered at all is evidence that you have a regenerate sensibility. Spiritually dead people aren't bothered by their sin. Our confession and scripture teaches us that this is the ordinary Christian life. When people come to my office or call me on the phone or email me and say, Pastor, I feel awful, I'm... I'm Losing with this besetting sin and I'm, I, I keep committing it over and over and over again and I feel like I'm not even a Christian at all. I tell them, take heart. The fact that your sensibilities are even pricked at all is a sign and an evidence that God's grace is at work within you. You know, it's been said that the more holy we become, the less holy we feel. That's true. Our sensitivities and sensibilities, our allergies against our own sin become more and more heightened the more we grow in grace. The more holy we become, the less holy we actually feel. What I thought was holy ten years ago, I'm pretty embarrassed of now because of what the Lord has done in my heart and in my life. And so, and so, the Lord, as we're summoned by him in his word, tells us, Christian child, keep on fighting. Stay in the battle. It's very easy for us to think, isn't it, that the battle is out there, out there in the culture. I think we've been making that mistake for a number of decades now. That's not to say we don't do cultural engagement. No, we do. But the primary battle, the fundamental battle in the Christian life, is the battle for personal holiness. And you can be sure, Satan is delighted to distract us and get the church off mission. No, as one commentator put it, the word of God issues a summons and a call to arms to go to the front lines in your own heart and say, I will press on and I will not give up, armed with the confidence that he who has promised is faithful and he will surely do it. You remember the words of that old song? Trust and obey. Trust, that's justification. Believe on Christ. And obey, that's sanctification. 
So brothers and sisters, let us believe on Christ. And fueled by the power of his indwelling Holy Spirit, let us put sin to death. Let us grow in holiness. Let us pursue conformity to Christ. Let us seek to yield, or rather, let us seek to heed and obey his commands as those who love him. And may the God of peace himself sanctify us completely, because he who calls us is faithful, and he will surely do it. Let's pray. Lord God, we bless you that you are indeed at work in us, both to will and to work your good pleasure. May we indeed pursue your good pleasure, and Lord, do indeed transform us from one degree of glory to another, and all for Jesus' sake. Amen.